Welcome to No Sanity Required. Today we're going to talk about crazy families. You got a crazy family? We just did a series on Jesus' crazy grandmas. We're going to see where all that started. We're going to go back, back, back in history, back, back, back to the beginning of the Bible, to the beginning of the story, back in the book of Genesis, and we're going to study the family of Jacob. We're going to take a peek at one scene in Jacob's family's story that is going to help us all understand that as crazy as your family get-togethers are, and as crazy as your family reunions are, and as crazy as your cousins or uncles or whoever might be, your family probably is not quite as crazy as the family of Jacob and his boys and his daughter, Dinah. So hope you enjoy this one. We're going to go beyond the flannel graph on this one. And thanks for tuning in to No Sanity Required. Welcome to No Sanity Required from the Ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a podcast about the Bible, culture, and stories from around the globe. So there's a story in the book of Genesis. It's in Genesis chapter 34, and the background is uh, there's this guy, Jacob. God has made an incredible promise to Jacob that he's going to use him to um, basically to build a nation. He's going to use Jacob's house and lineage to carry out um, the the promise that he made to Jacob's grandfather, a guy named Abraham. And that promise was that Abraham would be the father of many nations, but particularly he would be the father of the Israelite nation or the Jewish nation, the Hebrew people, would, which would be the nation God would raise up to bring his plan of salvation to the world, that that there would be prophets and kings and a, and a system that would be put in place that all of the nations of the world could watch and see God's promises fulfilled through this people, but that ultimately this people would be the people through whom the Messiah would come. So out of this nation of people that descend from Abraham, specifically from Abraham's grandson Jacob, that out of that would be tribes, 12 tribes to be exactly, or to be exact rather, and that one of those tribes, the tribe of Judah, would be the tribe through whom the Messiah would come into the world. And then out of the Messiah coming into the world, God would then use this nation and their Messiah to bless the entire world who the scripture refers to as the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. So most of us are Gentiles in the Gentile world. We've received the blessing that came through the nation of Israel and the house of Jacob, specifically the blessing of the gospel, which is fulfilled um, through Jesus. Now, in the life of Jacob and in his story, there's some there's just some crazy stuff that happens. That uh, Jacob was a, a manipulative guy. He was when you study his life, there's not much that is appealing about Jacob. He was a deceiver, a manipulator. He seemed to be fairly selfish motivated, selfishly motivated. But at the same time, uh, there's a 20 year stretch where we see like he's a man of like integrity as far as work ethic. God does a crazy. Um, work in his life to to grow his family. He he starts with nothing and ends up with a family of twelve sons. Uh, but he's got two wives. He's got a he's got sister wives, which is that's another story in and of itself. Kind of cuckoo how that happened, and uh, and definitely not something that uh, I want to get into in this podcast. But but he's got a favorite wife, and then he's got a less appreciated wife. The favorite is Rachel and her sister Leah. And Leah has a daughter named Dinah, the only daughter that's mentioned. Jacob is a father to many sons, and he's got this daughter, Dinah. 
Very little is mentioned about her. And she's born to Leah, Jacob's wife, Leah. And so Jacob seems to be fairly indifferent to Dinah. And so I want to look at a story, look at the story in the lens and the context of, of uh, how Jacob fails as a father and the impact that it has on his family, not just immediately, but for generations to come learn some lessons from it. So Genesis 34, it says, uh, Leah's daughter, Dinah, whom, whom Leah bore to Jacob went out to see some of the young women of the area. So the setting is Jacob has settled in a place. That's not where God has called him to settle. So there seems to be this, uh, there's some ambiguities, a little bit of maybe confusion. Jacob's dwelling in a land. That's not the land that God's called him to. So Jacob is living at least in a questionable questionable manner in terms of God's will for him. God has called him to go to a place called Bethel. Um, so he's dwelling in a place called uh, Shechem. And it's called, it, basically Shechem is the name of the chieftain there. And so they're dwelling among the Canaanites. Now the Canaanites are a pagan people, so they would represent like just the world, you know, like... Uh, not not the people of God. And we know that God is ultimately going to give to Jacob and his descendants the land of Canaan. And that's going to come through conquest centuries later. But in this moment, Jacob has settled in among the Canaanites, which is in and of itself, there's a lesson there. It's, it's sort of disturbing. He's grown very comfortable in the land of the Canaanites. And so this daughter, Dinah, the scripture says she went out to see some of the young women. Um, there seems to be interest in the world and what it offers because God had called the Israelites to separation. He had called Jacob and his sons to separation from the world. Um, and so I think it's important to stress that this is, this is, uh, something that is really interested in one of the commentaries I read. It's important to stress that Dinah's interest in the women of the land is directly connected to the tragedy that's going to happen to her in the story. I think lesson number one for me as a father is they're giving my children freedom that they can't quite handle, not paying attention to what they're listening to, not paying attention to their friends, not paying attention to the people they're dating, not, uh, not paying attention to what they're doing on their phone, their device, social media um, is, is potentially going to expose them to dangers that they're not even aware of it. It, it may be fun and games. It may be something that they're just looking to have a good time. Dinah seems to go into the land in an exploratory manner, which was not acceptable in that culture. We sort of miss this because well, I know like for me, when my oldest daughter was old enough to drive, she got a license and she started driving around. There's a lot of independence. There were rules and there was curfew and I was keeping tabs on where she was at, but there's a lot of freedom and our society sort of set up that way. And that society, that culture wasn't set up that way. So she's going uh, into the, into the Canaanite world. She's mingling with these, these women, these ladies in a place called Shechem. It's sort of reminiscent of the story of, um, of Ruth at the beginning of that story when um, this man Elimelech takes his family into a pagan land, the land of Moab, and begins to interact with those people. 
It's not like uh, it, it's it's hard for us to culturally understand it because it's not like, well, you should be kind to your neighbors who are not like you or who worship differently than you. This is this is different. You had you had a dark pagan stronghold of cultic worship and she's interacting within that within that world. This is don't let your daughter in 1993 go hang out with David Koresh at his compound in Waco. Okay, that that's what we're talking about. Don't let your daughter mingle with with tribal war leaders and pagan cult leaders. You know that you know what I'm saying that that's more what we're talking about. This is not don't let her interact with somebody from a different race or denomination. This is much more uh, destructive potentially. So so we see that Dinah is unsupervised, which becomes a theme. D- Jacob just doesn't seem to be interested in this daughter, um, which is really sad. Uh. Verse two, when Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, who was with the, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and raped her. So the terminology there is very aggressive, very graphic. Two things to be noted here, Ross says in his commentary. First, the verb, uh, raped is a, uh, uses the direct object, ata, um, rather than the indirect object, hima, which would mean lay with her. In other words, the attention is drawn to the force he used in committing the crime. This is a vile, make no mistake, this is a violent, aggressive rape. Regardless of what position Dinah had put herself in, um, she is brutally raped. Okay. Then after that, verse 4, he says, get me this girl as a wife. And again, the terminology there is he has defiled and raped her. Now he wants to acquire her as property. So Jacob leaving his daughter unsupervised in a pagan world where he, in a a pagan land where he shouldn't have been living in the first place allows her to go in and be physically and sexually assaulted, brutalized, raped. Then the the man that rapes her keeps her. Okay. So, so in the, in the storyline, she's not allowed to return back to her father. She's kept, she's in keeping with this man. So he has raped her and, and now he's got her basically as a slave. And he's wanting to now cut a deal with her family, give them money, work out some kind of deal. And there's a lot going on here. Number one, uh, this would give him sexual rights to, to this woman as property, which was common in that culture. But then additionally, it would unify. He wants to use her as a unifying piece um, to the puzzle of how the the – the, the, the Canaanites would interact with the Israelites, the Jacobites, Jacob's family, who would become the Israelites. So the Israelites are now dwelling in the land of Canaan. This man, um, the son of Hamor, who's the chieftain, wants to use this woman that he has raped and now taken as his possession, as his property, as a bargaining tool against the Canaanites. So Jacob's lack of leadership and conviction as a father and a leader has cost a lot already to his family. Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah. So Jacob hears about it. But since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. So here's a, another picture of Jacob's weakness. He hears that it happens. He doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't even speak of it. He remains silent. Meanwhile, Shechem's father Hamor came to speak with Jacob. So uh, the offending party, his dad, the chieftain of the Canaanites, comes to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident and were deeply grieved and very angry for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter and such a thing should not be done. 
So Shechem has raped Jacob's daughter. Jacob's sons come back from the field, and specifically Dinah's full brothers. So her brothers, she had, I think she had four brothers um, who were full biological brothers who were Leah's sons. So these are her full brothers, and she had a bunch of half-brothers who Jacob was their dad, but they had different mothers. So her full brothers were extremely angry, um, extremely angry. And in verse 7, right there in verse 7, it says that they were outraged against Israel, um, against their father and against Shechem, the man who had committed this this rape. And so you finally get uh, like like the – at least someone cares for Dinah. Jacob doesn't seem to care about his daughter. He let her go there unsupervised, uh, put her in, in harm's way. Now And then he's been silent once he heard what had happened to her. But her brothers step up. They, they sort of reveal to us the magnitude of the crime. And so they want to do something about it. Very angry. Um, and so Hamor said to Jacob's sons, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here and move about and acquire property in it. And so Canaanites are saying, hey, let's let's bind our people together. You guys can live here. And, they, and this is important in the way that they word this um, because they're basically offering Jacob uh, like status in the community. They're saying, hey, give us your daughter, and in return you can live here, trade here, uh, dwell here. You can have property, land. This can be very profitable for you. Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, grant me this favor and I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me a high compensation and a gift and I'll give you whatever you ask me. Just give the girl to be my wife. So they're basically saying, we'll give you whatever you want. You can live here and be very prosperous. Now, this is this is interesting because further down in the passage, in verses 22 and 23, these men go to the Canaanite leaders, like the elders of the Canaanite community, and they say, won't, and, and they say, uh, in verse 21, rather, these men are peaceful towards us. Let them live in our land and move in it, for indeed the region is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as our wives and give our daughters to them. But the men will agree to live with us and be one people only on this condition, if all the men are circumcised as they are. Now listen to this. Won't their livestock, their possessions, and all their animals become ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will live with us. So now we see Hamor's true motive. He wants to bind these two families, these two nations together, the Canaanites and the Israelites, so that they can prosper because Jacob is very wealthy. He has a lot of livestock. He has a lot of possessions. He has a large family and servants. He's, it's an economic move for Hamor to bind the two people together. So he's saying if, if we can make this treaty between us and the Israelites, it'll profit us in the long run. So, that's, so, so we don't know exactly what his angle is here, but he says their livestock and possessions will become ours. So ultimately he wants to swallow up the Israelite community, the small Israelite community into the Canaanite people and take possession. He's a war he's a warlord, he's a chieftain. So he's he's an aggressive dude and so we know what his motive is here. But if you go back up to verse 13, this is the response when when Shechem and Hamor uh, Shechem and Hamor go to uh, Jacob and his sons and say, "Hey, we want to keep your daughter here and unite our two 
nations, Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. We cannot do this thing, they said to him. Giving our sister to an uncircumcised man is a disgrace to us. We will agree with you only on this condition if all your males are circumcised as we are. Then we will give you our daughters, take your daughters for ourselves, live with you, and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. So, interesting development in the story. Jacob's sons say to the, these guys, Shechem and, Shechem and Hamor, okay, we will unite with you. You can take our sister to be your wife, your property, your sex slave. We will, we will allow that. Here's the deal. You have to be circumcised. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Circumcision was not only Jewish. There's historical record of other people groups that use circumcision as like a ritual in the process of going from singleness to being married. Like there, there's some documentation, there's some historical data, and there's historical record. But for the Israelites, circumcision was a sign, a symbol of the covenant that God had made with their forefather, Abraham. So circumcision was sacred. It was a promise. That it was a, a reminder and a symbol of the promise God had made to prosper their people and to bring the, the fulfillment of his gospel through their people. And so what they're doing here is they're taking a covenant sign and promise of God, and they're using it as a means of deceit to trick and fool this this people. And and so it's it's a convoluted thing that's happening here the sign of of circumcision god had a very clear purpose for that so let me read again from ross's commentary the sign of circumcision was not to be used in this manner for the shechemites it represented no turning to the covenant god and faith to deceive the shechemites was one thing to use the sign of the covenant in the deceit was another matter entirely so the the idea is um Circumcision is a sign of God's covenant. Circumcision was something that when someone was going to convert to Judaism or embrace the God of Israel, Yahweh, and his promise to fulfill the gospel, the sign of circumcision in those days was a a sign of conversion. So nowadays we use baptism. If a person converts and embraces the gospel and is born again, confesses faith in Jesus, they're baptized. It's It's a sign of their uh, submission to the gospel. And so in those days, circumcision was the sign that a person was entering into the covenant that God had made was with Israel. And so they use this to, de- so they're deceiving, Jacob's sons are deceiving the Shechemites, the Canaanites, but they're doing so by using the covenant sign that God had given, but they're not telling them, hey, this sign is to mean that you're going to, like is your statement of confession in Yahweh, the one true God, it was more, do this, and then you can have our sister as your sex slave. So they've set these men up for, deceptively set them up for disaster. All the men who had come to the city gates listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and all the men were circumcised. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, went into the unsuspecting city, and killed every male. So these two brothers, they go in, they take revenge for their sister. They kill everybody there. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with their swords, and they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went away. So this is a rescue mission. They go in. They they recognize that they can't attack and kill everyone there. Um, 
when they're able-bodied, so they wait until these men are recovering from this this very painful and incapacitating medical procedure. These men are all laid up, hurting, and they go in and kill them all. And so they take their sister. They get their sister, and they bring her out. They, they rescue her from this man's possession. Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. That that sentence, that verse 27, reminds us that man cannot handle executing the justice of God. They go too far with it. There's an, the, the ancient practice of an eye for an eye would have been acceptable here. Not not under not under the defilement of the covenant, you know, that it wasn't like using circumcision to deceive these men was okay. But but all in all, an eye for an eye was ancient practice that had been ordained and instituted by God. This is not eye for an eye. This is deception, using that deception to then get their sister back, bring revenge on the, the man who had raped her, but now they've assaulted the whole city, killed a bunch of people taken everything that they wanted to. Verse 28, they took their flocks, herds, donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field. So they've gone way beyond eye for an eye. Now they've not only exacted revenge, but they are now going to profit from it. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and they plundered everything in the houses. So you just see these these two guys who are who are motivated by vengeance. And, and, and we see earlier in the story, they, they want to they protect their sister and bring her back but they also are unjust in their cause. And so you've got this sort of perversion of justice. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. So Jacob finally speaks up in a story here, but when he speaks up, it's an expression of selfish fear. Jacob is like, Hey, listen, guys, what you did was wrong. Now we can't even live here. Now these guys are going to be out to get us. We had a we had a good thing going. We were going to be able to profit here. Now we're going to have to leave. And they're probably the other, the neighboring communities, the neighboring tribes and clans are going to hear about it, and they're going to come after us. Jacob is an absolute coward in this moment. And he's, and he's conniving. He's not taking care of his daughter. He's not led his family well. And now he's only concerned about loss of his personal comfort and potential economic impact. There's terrible, terrible lessons to learn here. What not to do, how not to lead, how not to father, how not to teach our sons, how not to protect our daughters. It's, it's like so many stark lessons here in contrast to how we're supposed to do things. If you look over a few chapters later in Genesis 49, at the end of Jacob's life, he's speaking to each of his sons and he's given them like blessings. He's getting ready to leave the earth. He's getting ready to leave the world. And he's given them blessings. And <clears throat> excuse me, he speaks of Simeon and Levi. Um, Genesis 49, 5. Listen to what he says of these two boys. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their knives are vicious weapons. May I never enter their council. May I never join their assembly. For in their anger they kill men, and on a whim they hamstring oxen. Their anger is cursed, for it is strong, and their fury, for it is cruel. I will disperse them throughout Jacob and scatter them throughout Israel. So even years later, on Jacob's deathbed, as he's 
handed down blessings to his sons. He remembers what these two boys have done, Simeon and Levi, and as young men, what they've done, and he curses them for it. It's crazy. And it's all because he wouldn't – this all comes back to Jacob. This is a leadership issue. This is a leadership vacuum in this family. And the final verse finally sheds some clarity on this. It gives us some clarity to the story, um, and I think it's I think it's helpful. Um, Jacob's concern was that his reputation would be tarnished. And listen in verse 31, the last verse of the story. Simeon and Levi answered, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? That's their only answer. And I really I, I appreciate that. As, as much as these boys overreached, they overstretched, they went too far with it. They're like, hey, listen, you're upset. And and you're upset because we're going to lose some creature comforts. We might lose some status in the land. We got to leave. But he treated our sister like a prostitute. He raped her. He enslaved her. And he wanted you to profit from it. And we're not okay with that. And so these these dudes in their zeal, even even though the zeal lacked knowledge and discretion, and and went to the place of selfishness and, and greed in some degree, they cared about their sister and they fought to protect her. And they fought to bring her home, and that's where Jacob had failed. So, a lot of lessons in the story. This is this is not trip, uh, typical traditional Sunday school um, teaching, but as we move beyond elementary things in Scripture and we begin to dig into some of these stories, the lessons are very practical and evident. And for for us, those of us who are men, who are fathers and husbands. There are lessons to be learned here. We need to leave our lead our families well, and leave our greed outside of that. And we need to be faithful in the way we execute justice and love and honor. Teach our sons and daughters integrity, and we need to be aware of who their friends are, where they're at, what they're doing. We need to be engaged in conversation. We need to know where they are in their walk with the Lord. We need to be shepherding them well. We don't have to be great theologians to do this. We just need to be faithful as men to lead our families as God intends us to. Crazy story with crazy lessons for us, and I hope it's an encouragement and at least as insightful for you. And uh, and and so thanks, just thank you for, for joining in, tuning in to this episode of, of the podcast, and appreciate you, um, the support we've gotten with this no sanity required podcast project. It's been an outpouring and really grateful. And uh, if you haven't left a comment, uh, I wish you would. I think that's helpful for people. It gives us good feedback. And also a reminder, you can always reach out to us at snowbird wilderness outfitters on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. And then also you can go to SWOutfitters.com. You can download the app from SWOutfitters.com. And keep up with all uh, what's going on at Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters. But also, you can you can reach out to us there if you've got questions, ideas for future um, discussions or topics on the podcast. And we always uh, take that into serious account and consideration. It's real helpful for us. And again, leave us a comment, and we'll appreciate it. And we'll see you next time uh, when we have another episode of the No Sanity Required podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. Thanks for listening to No Sanity Required. Please take a moment to subscribe and leave a rating. It really helps. Visit us at SWOutfitters.com to see all of our programming and resources. And we'll see you next week on No Sanity Required.